All right, then. So we're, we're continuing in our series in John's Gospel. And last week we looked at um, the, the resurrection of Lazarus, which, as I said uh, before, caused such a commotion, such a stir amongst the Jews that it got to the attention of the authorities who became very concerned, as we'll see in just a moment. And uh, this would lead to the arrest and the, the death of Jesus on the cross. And uh, so now we enter into what is the last week of Jesus's ministry leading up to the cross. So that's where we're at now. And we'll get in at John chapter 12 and verses one to three. Then six days after the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Quite a, an incredible thing that Mary did that came as a complete shock to everyone who was present in that room. She completely disregarded all the rules of propriety. Uh, for example, um, you know, it was customary to wash the, the feet of guests, but not while they were eating, not while they were at the table. That was done before, was when they arrived. Um, also, which was very uh, uh, against culture and against custom, was that she would have taken off her he head covering, loosened her hair, and, and used her hair to wipe the feet of Jesus. And for a woman to expose her hair like that in public was just taboo. And then the third thing is that she would use such expensive oil or ointment to anoint the feet of Jesus. Spices were generally imported and used as an investment. Much like we would, well, it's not we, but others would use gold and diamonds as an investment. Uh, because, you know, that, that they appreciate over time in value. And uh, spices didn't take up a lot of room. They were very costly. And so people would purchase them and have them as an investment. And this is reckoned to be worth about 300 denarii. Now, 300 denarii would have kept one man and his family on a subsistence level for one year, about one year's salary or wages for a working man. A denarii was a day's uh, wages. Uh, so you take out the Sabbath days and other holidays. So a man would probably work about 300 days a year. That was a year's wages, a year's income. So it was their investment, probably her life savings that she took on that occasion. And it was custom to pour a few drops of perfume on a guest when he arrived at a house or when he sat to eat. But she broke the flask and poured the entire contents upon him. The perfume filled the air, filled the room, and it seemed wasteful. But she didn't care what others thought of the act or about her reputation. Neither was she concerned about the cost. This was extravagant worship. This was worship which was just uh, uh, indescribable. And uh, that's what we see here. So then we see, but one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, 
who would betray him said, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. But Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. So Judas' argument was this. If Mary has had this ointment, why didn't she sell it before and give the proceeds to the poor? Jesus' answer was, it was to anoint me for my burial that she kept it until this day. Amazing. The next day he would rise into, ride into Jerusalem and be hailed as their king, but then he would be crucified. She knew this and her anointing him was in anticipation of his burial. When, when somebody died, it was customary to first of all bathe or wash the body and then to anoint the body and wrap it in, in, in bandages or cloths and, and then put the body in the tomb and then they would break the flask so that the remaining pieces of perfume or ointment would, would be uh, put in with the body so that the perfume would fill the tomb where that person was laid. And, and so Mary knew that Jesus' death was coming up and she anointed him in anticipation for his burial. Jesus at that time was in anguish as he contemplated the cross. We know that. In fact, if, if you read on and we'll look at this next week, he said, now is my soul troubled. Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. The very same thing that happened in Gethsemane. Father, if there's any other way, if there's some other way, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. You remember that the anguish was, was so intense that what Jesus was going through that it pushed the blood through the pores of his skin. And, and, and it was just incredible anxiety in Jesus at that time. And, uh, you know, crucifixion itself was a horrific thing, a horrendous thing. Uh, the way that a, a person is crucified and, and you know, the beating and, the, and all that thing that Jesus would endure before he went to the cross. And then his body nailed to a cross in his hands and his feet and hoisted up and dropped into the ground. And he would have to pull up his body on those nails just to breathe. Eventually it resulted in suffoc suffocation. But um, Jesus knew all this, but then on top of that, he knew that the, the, the wrath of God would fall upon him. The sin of every living human being before, during that time and afterward. Every sin, every, every thought, every word, every sinful deed that would ever be committed would be laid upon Jesus and the wrath of God would come upon him and, and consume that sin in his body. That's what he endured. No, nobody can enter into that. And, and he was in anguish as he sat there. If you read the other Gospels, the, the, the disciples were jockeying for positions. They were arguing about which one of them would be the greatest amongst them. Who was, who was the number one amongst them? They didn't have a clue what was going on in Jesus' mind, but Mary did. Only Mary was spiritually attuned to the significance 
of that moment. How did she know? She knew because she sat at his feet. We know this, don't we? She sat at his feet. When, when Jesus came to her house before, Mary was, uh, Martha sorry, was busy serving, preparing, which was good, but Mary chose the better part. She sat at his feet to learn from him. You've heard my testimony that um, uh, I, I went too quick into ministry before I had sat at the feet of Jesus and learned what the message is. And I went with a, with a distorted and perverted gospel before I had to come back and sit at the feet of Jesus and learn what the true message is that we're meant to bring to the world. And it's what we've been sharing about, that the missions uh, uh, people have been receiving as well, the death and the burial, the resurrection of Jesus for us. It's all centered on the cross. That's, that's what we're here to proclaim. Uh, you know, Paul says, uh, I, I, I share unto you the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and on the third day he rose again. That's the gospel. We can't go beyond that. We can go deeper and deeper and deeper into that. And the more we understand of that, the more we understand Jesus and God's love to us. And she knew this. She knew what was going to happen. She knew what lay ahead for Jesus that very week. She was his best listener. And that's why she did that. She showed that pure worship is a response to what Jesus did at the cross. That's worship. That's worship. This is reckless extravagance. Um, oh, sorry, there is a reckless extravagance about true love which refuses to count the cost. Amen. Extravagant love is never wasted. Love is not love if it has to calculate the cost. It gives all it can and only regrets that it has no more to give. That's how you feel when, when your eyes have been opened to what Jesus has done for you. You just want to pour forth your praise, your worship, and your whole life before him. And the whole house was filled with the fragrance. The whole house was filled with the fragrance. You know, I go to different places and uh, preach, and I've got that privilege of being in different churches. And, and you know, the thing I look for when, I, when we worship the Lord is I don't care if there's a 14-piece band up there that's playing and they're all professional and all that. that. That can be good. It can be neutral. It doesn't matter to me. What matters is whether the songs are focused on Jesus and the finished work of Christ. And, and, and you know, when, when uh, people like us come together and we're focused on worshipping Jesus for what he's done for us, you know what happens? The whole house is filled with the fragrance of God. And remember, the, that the house is where God is and where God is, we are. We don't come into his presence. We are in his presence 24-7. Amen. So when I talk about the whole house, I'm talking about here on earth and there in heaven because we are where God is and God is where we are. And when you read the scriptures, like, for example, you get those glimpses in the book of Revelation of what's happening in heaven. You know, they're worshipping the Lamb. The lamb that was slain, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own precious blood, unto him be the glory. And that's why I'm, I'm thankful for, uh, you know, we have one person who set aside, and that's um, Rochelle, who prepares the songs 
that we sing. And if you notice, they're Christ-centered, centered on the finished work of Christ. You know, some people criticize Hillsong and, and they've got a thing against Hillsong. I don't care about what people's prejudice are. I, all I look at is what are the songs about? I can tell you many of the songs they write are focused on Jesus and his finished work at the cross. And that's what we need to be focused on. Anything that lifts up Jesus and makes him the center, the whole house is filled with the fragrance of God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Now Judas had already worked out the cost and protested the extravagance as, being an, as an, uh, being an irresponsible waste. He had his calculator out and worked out that we could have sold that for 300 denarii. If he really cared for the poor, why did he take money from the treasury for himself when it could have been given to the poor? He pretended to care for the poor on the day that he wanted to rob them. So hypocrisy of that. He probably also followed Jesus out of ambition, thinking that Jesus is so popular now, uh, he will set up an establishment where Judas himself, already the treasurer, would have a top position and access to lots of funds. So he was now beginning to get disillusioned about what Jesus was really going to do. If this is about his death, you know, who wants to, who wants to speak about the death of our Messiah, our, our deliverer? It's interesting that the Bible says that other disciples joined with him in the protest. People are easily led. They, they didn't have the same heart as Judas. Don't, don't think that they, had the, that they really, you know, kind of had the same heart that he had. They didn't. But people are easily swept along. You remember when um, uh, we, we read in the book of Acts when um, uh, some Judaizers came and, and swayed the disciples to... To, to separate from the Gentile Christians. And Peter was caught up with it all. He was swayed. People are easily swayed. Even Barnabas was swayed. It doesn't mean to say they've got a wrong heart. It just means that they're not yet established as firmly as, as they should be in the grace of God, in the things of God. Amen. So others were joining in with, with Judas. Yeah, why, that, that, that's a waste. That money should have been sold and, and given to the poor. That, sorry, that ointment should have been sold and the money given to the poor. So Mary and Judas were complete opposites. You see a contrast here. She was a worshipper. He was a thief. She had a box of costly ointment which she poured out upon him he had a bag of money from which he took. Her open public worship contrasted with his secret theft and betrayal. She freely gave 300 denarii. He sold Christ for 30 pieces of silver. 300 denarii was about 12 months wages. 30 pieces of silver was about four months wages. He prized money, but she valued Jesus. Mary drew attention to all, uh, of all to Jesus. Everything was Jesus. She anointed Jesus. She worshipped Jesus. Judas would turn away the thoughts of all from Christ to the poor. Now, care for the poor is good. And, and the disciples did. They had money which they gave to the poor all, all the way through. And even after, we're, we're instructed to care for the poor but they would still be there after Jesus was gone. The thing is, when, when the focus is on Jesus, we mustn't change the message. Amen? You know, um, 
I mean, there is one church organization that, that 150 years ago was famous for preaching Jesus, preaching the gospel. They would go and stand on the corners of the streets in, in London, East London, and people would pelt them with tomatoes and, and eggs and just throw all rubbish at them while they were preaching Christ. But now they're popular because they, they care for the poor. You'll never be persecuted if you care for the poor. Amen? You will be persecuted if you stand up for Jesus and his finished work. Now, am I saying don't care for the poor? Of course I'm not. That's a part of our ministry. But it's not our message. And, and, and when that takes over the gospel, then, then we have nothing to say to the world. Amen? There are many charities in the world. We don't need the church to be a charity because there are many charities in the world. But only the church is called to lift up the name of Jesus and to proclaim Christ and, and all that he did for us at the cross. Amen. Judas went out the next day and made his bargain with the religious leaders to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Seeing one, personal, uh, one source of personal enrichment lost, he hastened to create another. Seeing that nothing was going to go into the the bag, he went outside to make merchandise of Jesus by betraying him. Jesus came to Mary's defense. He would soon announce that the gospel was to be preached throughout the whole world. And before he did so, he said that wherever it is preached, what Mary did would also be mentioned. Have you ever wondered about that? He said, when you preach the gospel, make sure that you include what Mary did. The gospel and Mary's response to it must never be separated. We must never forget that the greatest thing is what Jesus did for us on the cross. It must always be our greatest focus. Amen. To what Jesus did is the greatest thing. And so this thing was there as a wonderful example. All that Jesus asks of us is that we respond to that you know the psalmist said what shall i offer to the lord for his great salvation what, what, what shall i what shall i offer his goodness to me what shall i offer to the lord and, and so the, we get this idea of bargaining with god you know works what works can i do and then he said i will take the cup of salvation the greatest way that we honor God is to receive what he's done for us. That's the grace of God, is to receive the grace of God by faith. Doesn't mean to say that there are not works, but keep that out and keep that separate from salvation. It's by grace that we are saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. And all that he asks of us is that we respond to that with our worship, as Mary did, to pour our love before him, amen? You say, well, is that a work? Does that count? Well, you remember when uh, Jesus uh, healed 10 lepers, 10 of them, and he said, go and show yourself to the priest and offer what you know, you're supposed to offer. And they went, and as they went, they were healed. One came back. One out of 10 came back. And, and the Bible says, with a loud voice, he fell down at the feet of Jesus with a loud voice and, and worshipped him. And Jesus said, where are, where are the, the nine? You know, were, were there not ten? Where, where are the other nine? 
There's only one man coming. That man was a Samaritan, by the way, not a Jew. Now, a lot of people say, you see, we, we, we should praise God. And, and, and that, that, that's, their, that's their message out of that. That's not the message. How many people got healed? Ten. Whether they came back and worshipped or not, they all got healed. Amen. So even our worship is not a work. We don't receive anything because it's just our response to what he's done for us. Amen. Jesus healed them whether they thanked him for it or not, whether they worshipped him, because that's the grace of God. God is good because he's good, not because we do something for him. Amen. Okay. Now, a great many of the Jews knew that he was there and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also because on account of him many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus so the resurrection of Lazarus resulted in many more believers and consequently a greater determination by the leaders to kill him they even wanted to kill Lazarus because he was the living sign exhibit A <laughs> This is the man that was dead for four days and is now alive. And people were coming to see him. They obviously wanted to talk to him, interview him and, and touch him <laughs> and say, I saw that man that Jesus rose from the dead who was dead for four days. And so they wanted him out of the way. Can you believe the unbelief? Instead of believing in Jesus, that he's the Messiah who could raise the dead, they wanted to kill the evidence of his Messiahship. The chief priests were Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection so they were Sadducee okay that's an old one the chief priests were Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection and who feared the Romans squashing any appearance of a revolt you know the Sanhedrin there were two two groups there were the Pharisees who were the um, the, the, the the legalists those who who tried to interpret the law and insisted on the law being fulfilled all the time they had their own interpretation of it and their own rules that they added to it and so on that they were the Pharisees but then there were the Sadducees who were more skeptical they didn't believe in the spirit world they didn't believe in uh, uh, miracles they didn't believe in the resurrection and yet they were, they were like the aristocrats. They were, very, they were the upper class. They were wealthy. And, and because of their position on the Sanhedrin, they had it made. They had, they had authority over people and they had a good income and they did not want anybody to rock the boat. And now this was going to rock the boat. All these people were following Jesus. And so the Romans would look at it. They think that there's a revolt. The Jews are revolting. And so they would come down and, and even take away their position. So they had the most to lose if that happened. The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now there's two quotations there. The first one, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's from the Psalms. I think it's 
Psalm 118, I'm not exactly sure. And the other one, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. That's from Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Now, this great crowd that had come to meet Jesus as he entered into Jerusalem, there are two groups there. There are those who were with Jesus already and had witnessed the raising of Lazarus. That caused such a stir that there was a lot of local Jews that were there and they were flocking Jesus and following him everywhere. The, then there, the second group was the pilgrims who were in Jerusalem for the feast, the feast of the Passover, and they heard of Jesus. In fact, if you read those verses there, we're going to read them shortly, these Jews, these local Jews who had seen the, the raising of Lazarus, they told the pilgrims what had happened. And so there was this excitement. Everyone was in anticipation. This must be the Messiah. The Messiah has come. And so they, they all came out to welcome him into the city. Jesus was now at the height of his popularity. He was an outlaw. He was a wanted man. There was a price on his head. Yet he publicly rode into Jerusalem demonstrating, as we've seen all the way through John's Gospel, that no one took his life from him. He laid it down of himself. His hour had not come until it had come, and then he would willingly lay down his life for us. Up until now, he withdrew himself as much as possible from public notice. But now he openly rides into Jerusalem with all the attention of the city. Everybody's coming out and praising him and, and welcoming him and calling him the Messiah. And uh, the, the, the religious authorities are telling Jesus to tell them to be quiet, not to say that. And in Luke chapter 19, verse 40, Jesus said, if they were quiet, even the rocks would cry out. Even the rocks would cry out. Isn't that amazing? So let's go back then. Um, why did, he do, why did he choose this time? First of all, because, well, he chose the time because it was the Passover. That's the first thing. He, he wrote in, now publicly, openly, not afraid of anyone, because he chose the time to do that. It was the Passover. The lamb, lambs would be driven to Jerusalem throughout the entire day. Josephus, who is a Jew, Jewish historian, says that one year a census was taken of lambs which were slain for the Passover. They knew how many lambs were, were sold that were kosher, as it were, certified by the authorities as being clean. 256,500 were counted. A quarter of a million lambs were slain, were slain. Jesus, when he entered the city, he would have been surrounded by lambs. But the, the difference is this, friends, those lambs, there were so many. This, this lamb for that man's sin, this lamb for that man's sin, this lamb for that family's sin. And, and they would have to keep on being offered up. There would never be any end to the lambs being slaughtered. But Jesus came into the city as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The one who would lay down his life once and for all, by one sacrifice, we would be perfected forever. Righteousness would be imputed to us and, and we would be righteous from that point on, never regarded as a sinner ever again. Hallelujah. That's the good news of the gospel. And he was there with all these other lambs around him and he was coming in as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And he chose the way. 
chose the way that he would enter the city, fulfilling prophecy, as I just said, as Messiah. He did not ride into the city on a stallion of a military conqueror, but on a donkey as a messenger of peace from the Father. When, when somebody come like a judge or someone like that, a ruler on, on a donkey, it was a symbol of peace. A stallion, okay, that's more warlike, isn't it? But riding on a donkey was a symbol of peace. He came as the Prince of Peace. The Bible says that when Jesus died on the cross, God was reconciled to the world. God, was re God is not angry with people. God does not hate people. God does not want people to perish. God loves every kind of person, whether they're atheists, whether they're the worst kind of sinners, whether they're Hindus or Muslims or, or Buddhists or any other religion. He loves everyone. God sent his son, the Prince of Peace, into the city of Jerusalem to speak peace to the world, to kiss the world. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. Now the gospel is the call to individuals. Now you be reconciled to God. God is reconciled to you. He's not angry with you. He's not against you. He's for you. You be reconciled to him. How? By believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So this was a fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9. The word Hosanna means save now. They were all crying out, Hosanna, save now. You're the Messiah. The time has come. We've been waiting for you. Save now. Save us. Deliver us. They thought from the Romans. That's what they thought they needed salvation from. And then Jesus, uh, sorry, um, that other scripture from uh, Zechariah chapter 9, uh, we read these words, fear not the daughter of Zion. Fear not the daughter of Zion. That's a phrase that appears frequently in the Old Testament as a reference to the city and the people of Jerusalem. So when you read that term, the daughter of Zion, it's referring to the city and the people of Jerusalem. They wave palm branches as a symbol of victory. Can you, can you just catch the spirit of what was happening in that great crowd? They thought, this is it. This is our time of deliverance. Our Messiah, finally, after hundreds of years, after many prophecies, he's come. And they were waving these palm branches as victory. This is, this is our day and our day of salvation. But, of course, they were looking for salvation from political bondage to the Romans, not personal salvation, which we all need. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that he had done these things, that they had done these things to him. Therefore, the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. See, they were bearing witness to the pilgrims. For this reason, the people also met him because they had heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. As with many events and teachings of Jesus, the disciples did not understand what was really happening at that time. Can you just imagine? They must have thought, this is it. This is our moment. Jesus is going to be established on the throne as the king. They didn't understand. But the Holy Spirit would later reveal these things to them. In John 2, 22, for example, therefore when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them 
and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. And it's like that for us today, friends. We need the Holy Spirit. We need the word of God, but we need the Holy Spirit to help us to understand it, to, to strip away all the religion and all the traditional thinking around scripture for the Holy Spirit to open our mind and our understanding to the truth that the word of God contains. Jesus promised the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. And so we will only understand the truth about Jesus as our eyes are opened by the Holy Spirit. I love that song that we sing so often, Open my eyes, Lord. I want to see Jesus. You know, if you pray that prayer, God will make the scripture so real to you because it's all about Jesus. Mary's eyes were opened and she gave her very best in worship. He poured it out before him. Unashamed, not concerned about the criticism, the judgment, the misunderstanding and all that, you know, the, the um, accusations of waste and all that sort of thing. She didn't care what other people thought. When, when God opened your eyes, to Jesus in all his loveliness, in all his glory, in all his beauty, in all his wonder. It's life transforming. And that's why we need the Holy Spirit to reveal Jesus to us more and more and more. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for your precious word. We, we thank you, Lord, for the beauty of holiness. We thank you for the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ, for his loveliness. And Lord, we, we know that as you open our eyes to that, the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And Lord, that's what we need right now. With so much going on around us, with so many things happening in our world, and it's like the world is falling apart. Lord, we pray, open our eyes. Let us see Jesus. Reach out and touch him and tell him that we love him. Open our ears, Lord, and help us to listen. Open our eyes, Lord. We want to see Jesus. That's our prayer, Lord, and we ask that the Holy Spirit will lead us more and more into the revelation of the Son of God. In his wonderful name we pray. Everybody said? Amen. 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 Amen.